14. Hello, everybody, and welcome to 40 Going On 14. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh. And this week, I learned that meteorites bring you beautiful gardens at the cost of the utter rotten decay of everything else around you. So, you know, basically like Oak Park. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Oh, it's funny because it's true. <laughs> yeah, obvious joke is obvious. Yeah. To those of us who are in the Chicagoland area, at least. Yeah. Hey, you know, you know the difference between a comet and a, a giant ribeye. One is a big hunk of meat, and the other is a little meteor. <sighs> Playing the part of Joel tonight, Patrick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Joel just used up his funny. (laughs) No, I want ribeye. Oh, love a good ribeye. If you like ribeye, who doesn't? Wait, we haven't said what the show is yet. (laughs) It's about ribeye. Now it's about ribeye. (laughs) It's about meat. New show topic. Space plants, space shorts. We're talking about Die Monster Die versus the Colorado Space, uh, 19, uh, 2019's uh, movie. And those are both based off of H.P. Lovecraft's The Colorado Space novel or uh, short story. I'm circling back to ribeye because if you like ribeye, <laughs> <laughs> and who doesn't? You might like the shows on the podcast collective, such as I Am Salt Lake, The Internet with Scott the Pool Boy. Tales from the Hard Side, Talk Music to Me, and of course, the Red Dead Radio Hour. That was actually very topical. The sound out of space. Right. So yeah, if you're looking for uh, more of this, we are on Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, Blueberry Stitcher, TalkShoot, Podverse FM, Noon FM, Geek Life Radio at 9.30 in the morning on Wednesdays, as we are slated for right now. You can hear yeah. us, quote-unquote, live. Yeah. Uh, we are on Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, and we are on Amazon Music also. We are literally all over the place. In fact, we are currently sitting in your bathroom watching you. Hi! <laughs> we are the Bukaki of podcasting. You'll know I was in your bathroom if it's clogged afterwards. <laughs> That's a true story. I just want to say what Joel said. We are not that. We are all over you. Everywhere. Uh, no. If you'd like to uh, give us a call, let us know what you think. Get on the show. Call us at 708-NOW-RAP, 708-669-9727. Or if you are one of our international listeners, and we know we have many of them, uh, you can leave us a message on our Facebook messages or email it to us also. And this week, we got a voicemail. We're going to keep on coming. We do. So yeah. where, Here where we go. The... Oh, Denmark. Oh. So this is Something Fruity from Denmark. Hello, 40 Going On 14 podcast. It's your boy, Something Fruity. And I've got a snake in my boot. He does have a big cock, so yeah, I guess that makes sense. Is that how they pronounce butt in... (laughs) (laughs) I think he misdialed. He missed trying to dial whatever 911 is over there. This is something fruity. Send an ambulance. I've got a snake (laughs) in my... (laughs) Well, thank you for that information. Um, 
I've got a Woody now. No, I don't no. know what to do with it. I see what you did there. Do they have a lot of snakes up there? And I don't know. They have a lot of Danish. Oh, now I want a Danish. Mm, Great ribeye with a side of Danish. Mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you take a take a Danish and you wrap it around the ribeye. I was going to say you cut it in half and you just use it like bread. You have a ribeye sandwich. Interesting. Oh. Good Lord, it's a wonder all of us haven't died of some sort of cardiac infarction by now. I'd like to subscribe to your newsletter. <laughs> I like to look up the word infarction. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I think it's about that time. This week in music, movies, and TV. All right. So uh, this week we're going with October 27th, which is the original release of Die, Monster, Die which is, of course, the uh, German version of the English one that would come out later called The Monster The. I kept thinking that the whole time. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) It means the, Bart, the. (laughs) The person who speaks German be all bad. (laughs) All right. Joel, music. The other guys are going with the the other title that goes under Monster of Terror, neither of which makes sense with the film. But anyway, all right, uh, music. The number one song in the land was Yesterday by the Beatles. Good song. Yeah, I was going to say, that's probably in my top five Beatles songs. Yeah. Literally the number one most covered song of all time. Really? Even more than like Blackbird or Help? It's in the Guinness Book. Really? What about Imagine? Oh, you're right. Yeah, they forgot that one. I mean, I guess that's technically not a Beatles <laughs> song. But... Yeah, and he's saying of uh, song, not just Beatles song. Songs right, of all yeah, time. song of all time. Yeah, the number so they one. wouldn't they sure. wouldn't screw it up and not look at the other Beatles songs. <laughs> no one. Just give us one Beatles song. It's probably good enough. Stephen Sweet. Born Stephen Chamberlain on October 29th as a Los Angeles-based drummer who is most famous for being a member of Warrant. Before joining Warrant, he was in the glam metal band Plain Jane with Janie Lane, who joined Warrant along with him as lead singer and songwriter. Rest in peace, Janie Lane. Nobody? Anything? Warrant? Yeah, I kind of like Warrant, but I mean, (laughs) what else is there to say? Yeah. I saw them live. Actually, of course you did. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They opened for Motley Crue. I've told this story where Janie Lane was on stage. He had a black eye because he got punched in the eye by Stephen Adler from Guns N' Roses. Yep, I remember you telling me. You have the DVD of Warrant? No, he's got the Blu-ray box set. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I like Warrant. I listen to Warrant a lot. It's a good band. Fun band. Yeah. Moving on. They're not bad. They're just they're no Tesla. I don't know where. So on October 26th, <laughs> all four members of the Beatles became the first pop stars to be invited into Buckingham Palace. They went to receive their member of the most excellent order of the British Empire, MBE, medals from Queen Elizabeth II, which was a controversial decision at the time in England. Yeah, some some decorated veterans in England actually sent their medals back. Wow. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. Yep. 
Wow. All right. Yeah. Apparently somebody got Paul McCartney's autograph. One of the, you know, dignitaries there. It's not for me. It's for my daughter. I don't know what she sees in you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then. All right. Eugene Earl Bostick was an American jazz alto saxophonist and a pioneer of post-war American R&B. He had a number of popular hits such as Flamingo, Harlem Nocturne, Temptation, Sleep, Special Delivery Stomp, and Where or When, which all showed off his characteristic growl on the horn. Bostick died on October 28th from a heart attack while performing with his band. Wow. Strangely, I actually know a couple of those songs. Oh. So he died on stage. Yep. Way to go. Yeah, if you're a musician, that's that's the way to leave a mark, man. And finally, born October 30th, Gavin McGregor Rossdale is an English singer, songwriter, musician, and actor. He is the lead singer and rhythm guitarist on the rock of the rock band Bush. In 2002, he became the lead singer and guitarist for Institute and later became a solo career. Began a solo career. Got him fucking up twice. Rossdale resumed his lead role in Bush when the band reunited in 2010 and is probably most famous for being Gwen Stefani's husband. Or was. I don't know if they're still married. Yeah, everything I hear about him, he sounds like a total dick. Like, I don't think I've ever heard, like, a good story about like, who he is as a person outside of being an artist. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I'm looking up now. To- I can't really say I've heard a whole lot of Gavin Rosdale stories. I'm with Pat on this one. This isn't exactly something that shows up on my news feed. <laughs> he and Gwen Stefani divorced in 2016, so never mind. Probably because he was a dick. Maybe he <laughs> didn't have a dick. Or much of a dick. Who knows? I didn't even know he Institute. I've never even heard of them. Mm-hmm. Me either. Or his solo career. I knew he went solo at some point. Did he go on but... tour with Scott Stapp? <laughs> <laughs> Can't Stapp the Rass. Tour. Stap it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please stap it. <laughs> I like the Joel's just trying to claw his way back from us mercilessly mocking him about warrant. <laughs> uh, dunk on Scott Stapp. Somewhere Scott Stapp. He's, he's sitting out, he looked up from his newspaper and went, Why do I feel bad all of a sudden? <laughs> oh, he's at McDonald's working the third shift. Come on. Yeah, it doesn't mean he's not reading a newspaper. Uh, fair point. Can you load the fryer? Moving on to movies. The number one movie in the land was The Cincinnati Kid. I don't know anything about that movie. I've heard of it. Has uh, a really <laughs> dumb poker scene finale. Is that a Red Skelton one? No. No, no. Cincinnati Kid was uh, uh, Steve McQueen. Oh. Oh, and we all know how much you love poker movies. Yep. I do. I watch m- most of them and get mad at almost every one of them. <laughs> but does the does the Steve McQueen thing kind of balance out? It's got Steve McQueen and Anne Margaret and Edward G. Robinson. Oh. Wow. Yeah, I mean it, it was it's a good movie that, with the with the dumb ending. Carl oh god. Carl Mald- yeah, Carl Malden is in it. Yep. Like Edward G. Robinson, Rip Torn, a young Rip Torn. Good god. Cab Calloway. I may have to see this. I do. This has just jumped up on my list. 
someday somebody's Patrick's going to write like the quintessential poker movie and nobody's going to want to watch it. It's, it's going <laughs> right. to be like it's going to be like leaving Las Vegas too. <laughs> I, I was thinking more like they're just going to be like, I don't this is it's an hour and a half. A guy sitting in a circle going check. <laughs> <laughs> Can you move your sunglasses, please, sir? <laughs> that that movie was really good, but now I just want to want to never play poker. <laughs> Most accurate poker movie ever, right? You can call it the river. No. Oh, nice, Joel. <laughs> never mind. Maria McDonald, born Cora Marie Fry, was an American singer and actress known as the Body Beautiful and later nicknamed The Body. <laughs> she had small roles in many movies of the 40s and 50s. On October 21st, McDonald's sixth husband found McDonald's body slumped over her dressing room table in their home, her dressing table in their home, a victim of an accidental suicide via drug overdose. Yikes. Huh. Wow. The beautiful body. If you accidentally take too much of a drug, is it considered suicide or is it considered like? Well, they, that, that's an actual like medical term, accidental suicide. Oh, okay. I mean, because you still killed yourself. You just didn't yeah. do it intentionally. Yeah. But is it still illegal? It's kind of moot at that point. I've never, I've never understood, yeah, suicide being illegal. What are you going to do, arrest them? Right. Well, I mean, if it's an attempted and you fail, I mean, I guess technically they could press charges against yourself i don't know i mean they lock you up i mean yeah yikes all right movies released this week included sting of death and king rat still better than warrant (laughs) rita ann johnson was an american actress who began acting on broadway in 1935 and started her film career two years later she played a murderer in here comes mr jordan and a doomed wife in the rko film noir Acronym of the week, TWBM, which I'm <gasps> relatively sure stands for the wettest bowel movement. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Ah. Exactly the reaction I was hoping for when I was cracking myself up with that one. Ah. No, that was they won't believe me. Mm. That's a subtitle for the wettest bowel movement. <laughs> Like wiping a marker. <laughs> you won't believe me, but that was the wettest bowel movement I've ever had. <laughs> no, no, I don't believe you. No, I I believe you. Johnson no. suffered injuries to her head and legs, oh, attributed no. to a falling hair dryer on September 6th, 1948, requiring brain surgery, causing her film career to come to a near complete stop. She also suffered from alcoholism from the time of her injuries until her death of a brain hemorrhage on October 31st at the age of 52. Now, oh was God. she using one of the hair dryers from Spaceballs? Because how else would she get a fucking? It maybe it's one of those uh, like the canister ones, like they put yeah, like hair. this is the sixties. Oh. So think yeah, of the, 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 the no, that dryer. was nineteen forty-eight. So imagine what oh, size yeah, the, yeah. Hair, the hair dryer had to be, and it pro- she was probably sitting in it, and it probably fell over or something, and crushed her spine and crushed her leg. It, and I'm looking up her, her wiki. It says it took her a year to re- recover. Her left side was paralyzed temporarily, and she couldn't walk for a while. And then she, strangely enough, became an alcoholic after that, and then died of the brain hemorrhage. Yikes. On October 31st. Nice. Horrible. <laughs> you said nice. I mean, I was nice. I mean, <laughs> my first... Nice. That's my favorite kind of death. 
Yeah, Halloween death like that. If you say her name three times in the mirror, she'll have a drink with you. I thought she was more hair dryer. Do my hair, yeah. <laughs> what a bouffant you have! Hmm. A bulbous bouffant. <laughs> Gazebo. <laughs> All right. TV top shows in the land were Bonanza, Gower Pile, USMC, The Lucy Show, and The Red Skelton Show. Hmm. A decent a, lineup. Yeah. I'll say that's a good pile of, good pile of uh, TV right there. <laughs> a good pile of Gomer. Yep. Got a little Skelton. Got a little Lucy. You're doing all right. A lot of wholesome TV. Yeah. Kelly Rowan. Born October 26th as a Canadian film and television actress and former fashion model. She was in the horror film The Gate, the Canadian television film Adrift, and the lead role in Candyman, Farewell to the Flesh. Rowan went on to garner international fame for her portrayal of Californian real estate developer Christy Cohen on the American TV series The O.C., and she subsequently had the leading role on Perception. I remember The Gate. Yep, a little bitty, little bitty run, demons running around. Not to be confused with the gate too, where there's the infamous braces scene, if I remember correctly. Braces scene. Yeah, yeah. I'm not looking that up. I don't want to see that. So, ew. Born October 28th. Jamie Beth Gertz is an American actress and in- investor. Gertz mm-hmm. is known for her early roles in the films Crossroads, The Lost Boys, Less Than Zero, Twister, and Quicksilver, plus the 1980s TV series Square Pegs. Her roles as Judy Miller in the sitcom Still Standing and as Debbie Weaver in the sitcom The Neighbors are probably what she's most known for, along with her honey. Her her honey, <laughs> along with her homie, her, ho- her homie Honey Resler, Tony husband Tony Resler. God bless it. She's part owner of the Atlanta Hawks of the National Basketball Association. I wonder yeah. why they said investor. That's interesting. Yeah. Did you say she was married to Tony Resner? Homie Resler <laughs> doesn't sound right. That guy can't own an NBA team. He couldn't. <laughs> he couldn't even direct a show. Yeah, I remember wow. her from Lost Boys, man. That's well, I remember the Square Pegs TV show as, yeah. as briefly as it was on. Her and Horseface, and then uh, Horseface, uh, and then in Twister, you know, she was the the wife. Was she Bill Paxton's wife or ex-wife? I forget. No idea. She was like the the straight act, you know, like the serious role. Anyway. Bad. Thanks, Sports. Joel. <laughs> no, I was waiting to see how huh. how long you're going to keep just petering out here. Just keep going. I, I want yeah. more Jamie Gertz facts. <laughs> You've been subscribed with Jamie Gertz facts. <laughs> All right, moving on to sports. NFL players born this week included Marvin Washington, Otis Smith, Vernus Smith, Wayne Martin, and Mark Carrier. So now you know. And lastly, Warren Ayers is an Australian former cricketer. Mm. He played 46 first-class cricket matches for Victoria between 1988 and 1997. Mm. Ayers holds the record for most career runs in the Victorian Premier Cricket Competition, scoring 15,277 runs 
at an average of 42.43 in 19 seasons from Melbourne and six seasons for Dan Danong. Dan Danong? Dan Danong. Isn't, isn't that a T-Rex song? <laughs> Dan Danong. Get it on. <laughs> Dan Danong. Get it on. <laughs> oh, Cricket, you always amuse us. <laughs> Ah, so few things in life as pure as just cricket love. All right, so before we get into the movies, we're going to go back, back to 1927. Oof. Yeah, that's when H.P. Uh, Lovecraft wrote Colorado Space. It was Babe Ruth's heyday. Yes, Babe Ruth. To give a- people a kind of a frame of reference. Yeah. Yeah. Babe Ruth and H.P. Lovecraft actually were drinking buddies, and that's a lie. <laughs> no, that's I would be impressive pay- for a second. Like, no, god damn, I, I pay to see that. Can't believe we just tied them together like that. <laughs> <laughs> so he wrote Colorado Space in 1927. It first appeared in a, a edition of Hugo Gernsback's science fiction magazine, Amazing Stories, which I believe is still in print to this day. I used to read it all the time when I was in high school. It became one of his most popular works and uh, remained his personal favorite of all of his short stories. It has been adapted several times from the 1965 Die Monster Die that we're going to go over. The Curse from 1987, 2008's The Color from the Dark, 2010's The Color Out of Space Di Farba, and The Color Out of Space 2019. Lovecraft scholar Don G. Smith considers uh, Holler's work on The Curse, I'm sorry, Holler's work on Die, Monster, Die, almost a Roger Corman-style Edgar Allan Poe film rather than a serious uh, attempt to adapt a Lovecraftian tale. Yep. (laughs) Yep. It was directed by David Keith and stars Shut Up, Wesley. Uh, Will Wheaton, Claude Aikens, Cooper Huckby, and, yep, John Schneider. The John Schneider? The John Schneider. Um, TV's John Schneider? TV's John Schneider. Bo Duke himself. In an H.P. Lovecraft film. Which, kind of weird. So it's set in the 80s, though the Mitchell referred for the film as faithful to the author's original work, but he claimed the last 20 minutes of the film are so disjointed they ruined the whole thing. Uh, the Curse? I'm wishing we'd done The Curse. No. It looks terrible. Did we you were... watch Die, Monster, Die? I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He has the box set for Die, Monster, Die. There is no box set for that. That you know of. If there was, you would own it. Yeah. It's Boris Karloff. Come on, man. It is it is available on Blu-ray, Patrick, just so you know. Of course it is. But no, I do not own it. Now I know what to get you for your wedding. <laughs> All right. So Die, Monster, Die. As a young man visits his fiancée's estate to discover that her wheelchair-bound scientist father has discovered a meteorite that emits mutating radiation rays that have turned the plants in his greenhouse into giants. When his own wife falls victim to this mysterious power, the old man takes it upon himself to destroy the glowing object with disastrous results. Wow, that's uh, 
way more exciting than the actual movie. Yeah. I'd love to see that movie. I got a couple of drinks in me. I, I emote more. This is directed by Daniel Haller, who would go on to do such classics as Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, Knight Rider, and the ultimate high tech, Street Hawk. Oh, I like Street Hawk. Street Hawk. Street Hawk, the motorcycle. I don't even show. know what that is. Oh, yeah. You know what that is? The Street no. Hawk? The no. Street Hawk. There were toys for Street Hawk. TV's own Street Hawk? TV's own Street Hawk. And also, he did a couple episodes of Manimal. <gasps> TV's own Manimal. And- but no Auto Man? Come on. Good God, the 80s were weird. All right, so writing credits go to Jerry Soul for the screenplay. And uh, the Soul writer. <laughs> stop that. True. I'm a, I'm disappointed at you. Ooh. But uh, no, that's a soul ghost. <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, Jerry Soul. He was also a writer for uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Twilight Zone. So, in fact, uh, he did the Living Doll episode. Oh, yeah. All right, so that's he, good credit. You know, he also did some Outer Limits and uh, some Star Trek original series. He did Whom Gods Destroy. This, this Side of Paradise, and The Corumbite Maneuver. Oh, some good episodes. Yeah, so he's got some chops. Boris Karloff. Karloff? Karloff? Karloff. 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 Boris Karloff plays Nahum Whitley. Nick Adams plays Stephen Reinhardt, doing his best I'm from New York accent. Frida Jackson is Letitia Whitley. Susan Farmer is Susan Whitley. Terence de Marnay as Merwin. Patrick McGee as Dr. Henderson. You know, um, Merwin's name, uh, Laura and I were watching this. We couldn't understand, you know, Boris Karloff's got a, a, had a speech impediment. And so we're like, Merpin? Mer- Mer- Merlin? What's his name? And then we finally heard somebody say Merwin. We're like, oh, Merwin. Okay. I thought yeah. it was Berlin the magician at first. <laughs> we just kept referring to him as Merpin. Merkin. And that too. That was one of them. All right. So, so this is also the uh, directorial debut of Daniel Haller, first movie. Hmm. 1965, American International Pictures distributed this film in the U.S. in a double bill with the Italian sci-fi film Planet of the Vampires, which was dubbed in English and retitled Planet of the Vampires. <laughs> uh... Thank you. IMDb. That is literally cut and pasted from IMDb trivia. And What's funny is I saw that same piece of trivia with the Planet of the Vampires retitled Planet of the Vampires on Amazon X-Ray. <laughs> Apparently it's trivia. Yes. Yeah, I was trying to figure that one out too when I was watching the movie because I saw it on the X-Ray. I'm like, what? <laughs> maybe because maybe I'm just saying the first one wrong. Planet of the Vampires? Well, they didn't want to uh, confuse Planet of the Vampires with Planet of the Vampires. Nicola. Maybe it's Planet of the Vampires. Ah, yes, oh. there you go. As opposed to Planet of the Vampires. The emphasis is on of instead of the. Yeah. Okay. Nicolaj. Uh, the film is not actually shot in widescreen. It was converted to CinemaScope in the final print after having been shot in standard Academy ratio, like much 
much like some films which are matted after having been shot in that ratio. The process was used as a contemporary of Superscope and a forerunner of Super 35. It was filmed using spherical lenses at an aspect ratio of 1.37 to 1. In the printing process, images were cropped to a height of two perforations, giving them an aspect ratio of 2.36 to 1. The images were then stretched vertically to a height of four perforations, at which point they conformed to the standard Cinemascope 2 format. Is that what it's like to read cricket trivia? (laughs) (laughs) It actually kind of makes sense because there were some moments that it looked a little pan and scan. Yeah, things kind of got warped. Yeah. Yeah. There was like walleye vision every now and then. I mean, it, it wasn't quite like Planet of the Vampires, but you know, it, was, <laughs> it was. Yeah, it got a little weird at times. It was, in, it was, and that maybe have something to do with it. So I don't think anyone actually gave Susan Farmer a copy of the script. I think they just told her anytime anyone says anything to you, you just say the three words that are your go-to are "I don't know." Yep, I counted eleven "I don't knows" from Susan Whitley. And I got to say that Letitia Whitley was quite possibly the most like hapless heroine in the history of film. Like she couldn't do anything for herself and she needed a man at every turn. And it was, it was kind of disheartening. Like she couldn't do anything for herself throughout the entire film. That was the mom, right? Yeah. No, that's the daughter. Wait, no, Letitia's the mom. No, Letitia's the mom. I got them backwards. Sorry, Susan. Yeah, that's Susan. Yeah. Did yeah. you miss what year this movie was made in? Right. But still, come on, man. Like, even some of those people could, you know, get put on a pair of pants and do something for themselves. I don't know. I fall okay. back to my original question. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 romantic, the romantic lead in this movie is famous for playing a Confederate soldier on TV. So if like you're looking for like modern, pretty okay stuff, you're looking in the wrong place. I'm just glad that Joel wasn't in charge of like the the women's civil rights movement. He's like, put some pants on and do some <laughs> stuff, you know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. It just it was it was uh, it was just sad to watch because I felt bad for her. Now you're you're but here's the thing. This is not like a theme that you're like, wow, this is really different from every other movie in this time. No, it's this is this is how heroines were in 1965. They fell down. They called for the guy. I mean, it's you're you're not exactly getting a final girl out of anybody on this on this yeah. uh, time. This uh, was three years before Nick Adams uh, mysteriously died from a drug overdose. Ooh. Uh, yeah, aside from actually being famous for being on TV for The Rebel, the Confederate soldier action show that I was referring to, he was probably best known for being close personal friends with both Elvis Presley and James Dean. Ah, huh. interesting. Now, that's yeah. that's trivia. That's good trivia right there. Yeah, I, well, and that's the thing is apparently having been in Rebel Without a Cause and a friend of James Dean is the reason why Elvis wanted to be a friend with him when he appeared as a bit part in an Elvis film. Because I thought I knew the name Nick Adams. And dude looked familiar. So yeah, I I did a little bit of a dive on him. Yeah, I didn't recognize anybody in this other than than good old Boris. Uh, I assume this was the first viewing for everybody. And last. (laughs) Yeah. And no, I have seen this before. 
Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. This is one of those, like, when I worked at the video store, it I grabbed it, I watched it, I had a chunk of time where I was totally into, like, the 50s monster movies, and... Like, but not like the Frankenstein or Bride of the Bride of the Groom, which are the really cheesy ones. And I've seen this. It's probably the third time in my life that I've seen it. Huh. So I will say, considering that uh, I, I didn't much care for this movie, if I, I'm going to pick out something that was actually good about it, the set was excellent. Oh yeah, yeah. I thought the set design was creepy, and uh, I love the like big skull with the chains coming out of its eyes. And like Baphomet was in there somewhere too. I, yeah, there mm. was some cool shit in terms of the set design, and I thought it was interesting how they worked the set around because they had to rewrite the script so that Boris Karloff could play it in a wheelchair because that was the only way he could do it at this point in his career. Yeah, he had a really bad back, mm-hmm. which he got he got around pretty quick though for being in a wheelchair. I'm going to say no one will be seated in the theater for the thrilling man on foot being chased by man in wheelchair scene. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that doesn't tell red dragon, but I enjoyed it for what it was. I, I did kind of like the creature design, even though it was very like brief, like right. Like 30 seconds of, of creatures. And that was it. But considering the time and and everything, I, I thought they were pretty well done. And they did use color in it, not not quite to the effect that they did in in the remake or the most recent remake. But uh, they did use the color green a lot. Yeah, and I'm not going to dunk on it too much for uh, the whole thing being radioactivity and not understanding how any of that works because it's the 60s and all horror movies. It's like, okay, I see what year it is. It's something radioactive. I get it. 1965 existential outer-worldly horror would not really stick with an audience. Now, nuclear energy was something that they could universally be terrified of. So I think they just fell to... I mean, granted, it was a trope at this time, but they did fall to something that would actually make people briefly scared. So I think that at least was a good choice, because I can't see actually H.P. Lovecraft-type horror selling tickets i mean granted this didn't do great but at the same time i can't i i just don't think that would have passed the litmus test for even getting made yeah you could be right but i don't know i will happily dunk on this movie for being fucking boring and with incredibly flat characters like even for low budget uh horror sci-fi the characters were bad oh i'll dunk on it too i've seen it multiple times it doesn't mean i think it's good and I mean, there was definitely some problems with the scripting. Like I said, some of the things that Boris did from a wheelchair. Well, like, for example, when when uh, Merkin, you know, fell down and ruined dinner and he's like, you all need to leave. I'll take care of this. You know, and he's like, I, you, like you can't be here while I point at him and do nothing. Right. What are you going to do from your wheelchair? How are you going to, like, move him? What are you going to do? He, he, let these people that are able bodied, young, strapping yeah. 30 year olds you know handle things why don't you let the guy with feet that work work lift that guy exactly so there were things like that that were kind of kind of bothersome but i mean there might have been some pacing issues but i've seen worse <laughs> that's not a ringing endorsement I was yeah, just saying, for- none of us doubts that 
Yeah, from you, that ain't something that I'm going to be like. You've seen worse, Mike. I have seen worse, but I'm not bragging about it. <laughs> this this one, I I like the cheesiness of it. I like the creature to, creatures in the greenhouse. I think that they were probably as close as they could get to, you know, the concept of Amigo and those type of creatures from H.P. Lovecraft. But I mean, what what I do like about this is. Honestly, it's when he first shows up, how the whole town. Oh, hell, hello. Welcome. To, welcome to town. What can we show you? This, that and the other. Yes, that's OK. I'm looking to get to the Whitley house. Oh, kiss my ass. You know, even the guy who sells bicycles is like, you're walking. You know, I I think that's hilarious. I love Nick Adams' accent in this because it is so out of place for the conversation of everybody else's because you've got Boris Karloff doing this educated scientist-type voice, and then you've got Nick Adams doing the, um, hey, boy, you know, I'm I'm, I'm looking to find a girl. You know, that's sort of like almost a Sam Spade type of conversation with him, but... It's cheesy and I loved it and I kind of I kind of dig this. This is I don't want to say it's my thing, but I thought it was fun. Well, and I got to say the the creatures in the in the uh the greenhouse still more realistic than the creatures in in the mouth of madness. In the mouth of madness. Yeah. Oh, god. If we're talking Lovecraftian creatures, I don't need the the Cthulhu Muppets. I'll take these guys over that. I've never seen In the Mouth of Madness. I don't know what that is. So I can't, My I personally can't compare. It's so, a shame because until they show the bad special effects, it's actually a pretty decent Lovecraft film. Yeah. yeah. Like up to that point, I was in. I was like, Sam Neill, do it. And then it got to that point and I went, what? Yep. Yeah. I'm out. But anyway, that's what we're talking about. What did you think, Pat? I mean, aside from, I mean, the little bit you said. I don't know. I mean, I I didn't care for it. It just, it was boring. It was bad. The acting was, eh. I mean, it just, literally the only good thing I can say about it was I liked the set. That was about it. I mean, I didn't think the monsters were great. I didn't think the effects were great. I didn't think, uh. The story was great. I didn't think the acting was any good. I, I just did not enjoy it. I mean, it it wasn't like a like a, a bad movie in the aspect of like like a mockbuster. It just was a nothing movie. I just I don't know. I didn't I didn't get anything out of this movie at all. I would agree with you. It does feel like somebody in a studio was like, "Hey, we got this story. Let's make it into a movie." Hey, it sounds like a good idea. And then they sit down. And they're like, you know, we can do this under this budget and make some money back. And I'm sure they did. There's definitely no passion at all in this movie. This is an early version of movie by committee. You can tell whoever made this. Just, it was just a thing that they did. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was just something to put asses in seats. And I mean, you look at the poster for the movie, which I'm pulling it up here real quick, just so I have it in front of me. but. There's a guy swinging an axe. There's Boris Karloff's face in purple and like a castle like structure. And I, and he's got no eye and no pupils. And at no point did Boris Karloff turn purple, have no pupils, nor was there. I don't think there was an axe that was swung at anybody at any point in this film. 
when he swung the axe at the meteorite at the end. Oh, good point. Oh, yeah. I do sit corrected. You stand corrected. But just, there were so many things about this movie that just, I was like, what? (laughs) Well, okay, first of all, I don't know if I just missed it or what, but who the hell was Helga? No, Helga was the the mother's maid, the sister. There was a big deal. There was a big deal about like her uh, earring oh, was right. the most important yeah. mystery. Okay, I do remember that, and I remember her talking about the maid. And I, I but I just suddenly out of the blue at one point they were like, um, "I'm pretty sure that was Helga that attacked me." I'm like, "Who the hell is Helga?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the missing maid, and that that's a pacing issue. Like I followed <laughs> it, but yeah, I could see where someone would have missed it. Yeah. She just got mentioned at the very beginning and then was never brought up again. And suddenly they're like, oh, yeah, Helga. I'm like, oh. One one thing I will agree with you on this, Pat, and I think it's also kind of goofiness, but he gets attacked. He's out walking around. He gets attacked by Helga. And then just right? kind of is like, yeah, that was <laughs> the thing that happened. This guy brushed off so many things. Kind of brushes it off. When he gets attacked, she runs away and he doesn't follow. Yeah. Yeah, he, he doesn't follow, and he's like, uh, I'll make a phone call. Yeah. All right, well, catch you later on the next attack. <laughs> right? <laughs> that was strange. It's it's high-level esoteric horror being brought into the 50s horror I mean, yeah. films that where they're trying to make I it. I was just going to say, it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't feel... Lovecraftian in any way. They moved it to England because of reasons. And it wasn't the reason wasn't that anyone could do an English accent. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, and and even the monsters in the uh, greenhouse made no sense. They just were there making noise. They never did anything. It was a a zoo from hell. Yeah. No, he called it that. I like. I like it when they screamed while they were at dinner and he's like, what the hell was that? And Boris Karloff is like, it's like, oh, it was the loons. Yeah, that's what loons sound like. Terrifying. The hell kind of loon do you have? My guess is that somebody, you know, in in the studio read the short story. and was like, oh, wow, this would be this would be really cool on the screen. And he took it to him. He's like, we should option this for a script. And somebody sat down and was like, I can't fucking turn this into a script. We'll take this part and this part, and then we'll build up around that. Yeah, it's, it's like some producer was a Lovecraft fan. And he's like, guys, make this movie. And then he never looked at it until it was done. And he's like, all right, guys, burn this movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, we're going to take the first name of the father, Nahum. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to take the meteor. And we're going to discard the rest of the short story. <laughs> Yeah, because I, I mean, I not, I don't know. I, I know I've saw a documentary about uh, Lovecraft. I know some of his work primarily from playing, you know, games and hanging out with you guys. But it didn't feel Lovecraftian to me, and I'm not even like a, a big fan of his work. Like I don't know it. So if somebody like me that's a a passive kind of fan, that's saying something that they definitely did not pay close attention to the source material. And I'm kind of the same way, like a passive Lovecraftian fan, but, and I think this is the the movie that was kind of made for us and it completely missed the point. 
They're like, we want we want people that know the name Lovecraft but don't know it well enough, and we want to entertain them with a spooky Lovecraftian story. And yeah. then they 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 didn't do it. Yeah, I'm into right. Lovecraft, like from uh, all of his uh, work to uh, the games, of course, and the things that ins- are inspired by the mythos that he and those who followed him created, while recognizing that as a person, he was extremely problematic, to <laughs> to say it light, lightly. <laughs> yes. What is, what's, what's that when you can't, when you're afraid to go outside? What is that? Xenophobia. Yeah, he was agoraphobic. Uh, yeah, he was agoraphobic. Xenophobic, was, uh, racist. Xenophobic. Oh, and he was extreme. Like some people are like, well, yeah, people just want to look at everybody in the past and uh, say that they're racist. It's like, no, even for the twenties, this guy was super <laughs> fucking racist. He he went all in with the racism. Yeah, and- yeah. Which we'll make an interesting point when we get to the the now, but we'll get there. Yeah. Yeah, something just thrown wildly off topic. It's one of the reasons why I love Lovecraft Country is because they take this body of work by a man who is unbelievably racist, even for his time, and make it a black story. I think it's fucking awesome. Yeah, and he would have an aneurysm if they knew that he did that. (laughs) Right? So, speaking of the Colorado space, uh, I'm thinking I need to take a break. We'll move on to the next one. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to talk about this movie anymore. I was very just annoyed by this movie more than anything. I think we've beaten the radioactive zoo animals to death. <laughs> Is that a loon? <laughs> I hear a loon. What's going on, Susan? I don't know. <laughs> I, I've only lived here my whole life. I'm not allowed to know anything. I don't know. You'll have to ask my father. That is not something I am privy to. You, you, you have been here for three days. Please take charge of this investigation. <laughs> He's dying. I'll take care of it. Suddenly, Susan realizes that she can't say I don't know to what was said, so she defaults to her other line, which is, oh, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> so what about the, the uh, I'm sorry, the mother also. That's another... Creepy McDisappear face? Yeah. Yep, we've given this more time than it deserves. Let's take a break. All right, we'll be back in a little bit, and we are going to talk about uh, the color out of space from 2019. Nick Cage. Okay, so we have talked about D, Monster D, and now we're on to The Color Out of Space. 2019 is a Richard Stanley film starring Nicolas Cage. A secluded farm is struck by a strange meteorite, which has apocalyptic consequences for the family living there and possibly the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's yeah, fair. Yeah, that's yeah, IMDb. But uh, yes, this is directed by a one Richard Stanley, who did Hardware from 1990, did The Island of Dr. Moreau from 1996, and didn't really direct anything since then. Yeah, 
Yeah, he kind of fell out of favor there for a long time. Yeah, I like that Dr. Moreau did not do well. No, he was fired on Dr. Moreau, replaced by John Frankenheimer, and then uncredited for that. Which we talked about that, Mike, the, the documentary. You said you've seen it, right? Lost Souls? Long time ago. Which is all about Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau adventure and gets into him a lot. It's really, it's a good documentary, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's good to see him having a comeback. And he's actually working on, I believe, more Lovecraft films. Yeah, it's actually, we've got a little bit of trivia on that one. But uh, first known for Hardware, starring a very young 1990 Dylan McDermott and Iggy Pop in that one. What? Don't forget Lemmy. Lemmy's in it, too. Oh, yeah. Le- Lemmy was in it, too. That's right. You better bring a, uh, what's he say? Bring a lead pipe. Yeah. A piece of pipe. Hardware, it's a lot of fun. That was a good movie. I enjoyed it. And the poster was on the floor. You reminded me. Yeah, I had, that was one of the posters that we had on the dorm floor. Together. Also, Scarlet Amaris. Yeah, Scarlet Amaris was part of one of the writers on this one. She's done this. She's done, and this is this looks strange. Blood Bags, the movie where she was a dialogue editor. Hmm. Replace where she's for additional dialogue. So, I guess she helps with dialogue. All right. Yeah, there you go. She's a writer, right? Yeah, she is. All right, so this movie stars a groundbreaking new actor by the name of Nicolas Cage as Nathan Gardner, Jolie Richardson as Teresa Gardner, the mother, Madeline Arthur as Lavinia Gardner, Elliot Knight as Ward Phillips, a twist around of Philip Ward from uh, Reanimator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, in the original story, his role, the uh, surveyor, is the narrator. And he, he kind of does that here, too. Mm-hmm. But in the story, it's more flashback. And in this, we get to see it all happen. Yeah, leads. Well, I mean, he, he does the narration at the beginning and then narration at the end. But yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Elliot. Oh, not Elliot. Uh, Tommy Chong is Ezra. Brendan Meyer as Benny Gardner and Julian Hill- Hillard as young Jack Gardner. Who you guys may remember from The Haunting of Hill House. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that poor kid, dude. That guy, that kid is going to have nightmares for the rest of his life. Between <laughs> I, I was thinking that at one point when he's sitting there staring at the well and everything, I'm like, I'm like kid's going to need some counseling. When he's <laughs> yeah. Between this and Bowler Hat guy, you know, what the hell? Also, this kid like becomes this horror icon. Yeah, that would be kind of cool for him too. To, like this is the the growth of the next crap, Joel. Uh, Evil Bruce Dead. Campbell. Yeah, this is a youth Bruce Campbell growing from beginnings. Or he turns into Jonathan Lipnicki. <laughs> the human head weighs eight pounds. Stop that. Dogs and bees can smell fear. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. All right, so trivia. <laughs> In a Q&A with Richard Stanley, he claimed that this film is going to be first of a trilogy with a Dunwich Horror adaptation coming next. That's cool. I'm in. It's also Richard Stanley's first feature film in 24 years since the what we just spoke about, the uh, Island Dr. Moreau incident. If you're counting Dust Devil in 92 assigned work. But like we said, he was fired and replaced by John Frankenheimer, and then they left him completely out of the credits afterwards. 
left, which is kind of a suck. Yeah, it's a big dick move. Yeah. So the color used in this film to to represent the color is magenta, which doesn't exist as a single wavelength of light on the spectrum of visible light. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet, also known as Roy G. Biv, to join the seven initials. Rather, it's an extraspectral color that is only perceived by humans in a specific interaction of the optical rods in the eyes that detect red and blue in specific circumstances to create magenta in the mind. What? Since red and blue are associated with evil and good, it means that the color is apart from evil and good to come from another universe where these concepts cannot be applied. I did not know that. When are red and blue associated with evil and good? I don't know. I get red for evil, but blue for good? Doctor Who. That's that's pretty common. No, it's not. Captain America, Superman. Red Skull. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you could see blue in a lot of, like, knight standards and banners in uh, fantasy. Uh, I think it's stretching. Like if uh, you think of like the background of uh, generic space federation, the most common color is going to be blue for the humans. Well, blue in general is one of the most common colors in modern movie making, period. What color is the uh, the Klingon logo? Klingon icon? Huh? Red? Hmm? Hmm? Well, I said I believe red for for evil more than I believe blue for good. Okay. Like generic, and it might be because of its association with America. This might be a American perspective, but in general, if there's a generic good guy and they've got a logo, I'm going to guess nine times out of ten, the background for their logo is going to have mostly blue rather than green or even white. So, yeah, I, I, eh. I, I could buy this. Yeah, well, I think you're wrong. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> also, in the original short story, Nahum Gardner has three male children. Thaddeus, Merwin, ah, ah. and Zenus. Zenus? Zenus? What the hell? I'm your fire, what's your desire? <laughs> in the film adaptation, Nathan has two sons, Jack and Benny, and a daughter, Lavinia. Uh, Lavinia is actually the name of the character from... H.P. Lovecraft's Dunwich Horror. Mm-hmm. And I think going from Nahum to Nathan, that's smart. I mean, they're transposing this into modern day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I can't tell you how many Merwins and Xenius I know running around out there, but two. Uh, Nathan complains. <laughs> <laughs> You're like a speed bump to me sometimes. Uh, (laughs) And in case you were wondering, Nathan complains to Benny and Lavinia if they know the cost of alpacas. $25,000 each. As of 2019, a breeding female of alpaca, depending on its quality as a specimen, has a cost between $5,000 to $30,000. Woo! Stud males can go for up to $10,000 and more, while young males and geldings can start from high $500 and up. That alpaca mate. I was completely guessing on the 25000 because I was just trying to think, like, like if you could only afford four, and this is, like, all your savings and stuff, approximately, I was thinking, like, 100000 
25,000 mm-hmm. each. So glad so to know the, I was semi right. The, the animal of the future. Nothing like some good alpaca meat. Oh, God. And when I was in Colorado, they were everywhere, man. Saw alpacas all over the place. Alpaca bowl. I got it. <laughs> they all got it. <laughs> Alpacameat.com. No. That no, that's a thing. Vermont raised premium alpaca meat. <gasps> now I want to try somebody, it. Somebody oh, some alpaca farmer should like buy a um one of the college bowls, so then they just call it the alpaca bowl. That's what should happen. Yes, spend lots and lots of money on a pun. Yeah, but it also gets you exposure for alpacas. (laughs) (sighs) Your logic never fails to amaze me. Why would somebody spend $150,000 just to change it? But more people know about alpacas. Alpacas? What are those? They're the nicer versions of llamas. Llama, llama, llama. Well, you're not wrong on that, yeah. Lama Lama Ding Dong. Especially at the beginning of this movie. This film is gorgeous. Yes. Yeah, Richard Stanley is not one to shy away from composing a very beautiful shot. Yeah, I I was spellbound by some of the original dialogue at the beginning, talking about how the hills rise wild west of Arkham with those shots of the blasted heath before it's blasted. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I will say about this was a ride. Yeah. <laughs> I, I found it deeply unsettling for the first two thirds. And then there's the drop kick straight to hell at the end. And uh, it's, I, in addition to, besides the fact that the original story doesn't show you what happens to the gardeners as it's happening in both uh, like, Feel and content. This is probably the most accurate film of adaptation of Lovecraft's work. I was wondering about that, and that was one of the things I was going to ask you. So I'm glad you answered that question. And my question is, is this the first viewing for how many of us? For me, yes. First for me. It's been on my list for a while since I heard about it, and it was my first viewing as well. This is the third time I've seen this. Third? Yeah. Wow. I found it on one of those like uh, rental apps for like the library video rental apps. I watched it once, watched it again. And then when we said we were going to do this, I got excited and watched it one more time. When it premiered at a film festival, uh, someone said, hey, they just made color out of the space. It's got Nicolas Cage. And I think it might actually be good. So I kind of raised an eyebrow at that. I really enjoyed this movie. I agree with you, Josh. This is probably the best translation for a H.P. Lovecraft uh, horror from beyond type movie. And I think Nick Cage was probably the best choice for someone who's going to express that. Yeah, I mean, it's wild that he's a little... uh, All the family is a tiny bit off when we first meet them, like even before the Meteor Lands. He is more off than the rest of them. He's extremely eccentric, but in a sort of like 
goofy dad way. Yeah. I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, he's very much kind of that dad jokes kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, And they've been through some recent trauma. And, like, where they go when they start to become corrupted by the color making things around it like what it understands is in line with their personality, their flaws, their problems in interacting with one another. Mm hmm. Well, I mean, the little boy, he sees his friends. He sees. He sees comfort because he doesn't know where he stands. And his mother has this awkward relationship with her husband since her double mastectomy. She's struggling with her relationship with her daughter, and she is overprotective and too close to her youngest son. Like, she babies him beyond the point of reason. Yeah. Well, and I, I think the only one that was really kind of underdeveloped a little bit was Benny. He didn't have quite as much substance to him as the other characters. Yeah, he had the back and forth with his relationship with his sister, and he was the one that cared the most about the dog. Yeah. Aside from that, he was mostly getting high with Ezra in the woods. Right. Which, by the way, I just before we get too far, uh, number one, you have a, I don't know if you'd call him the lead, but, you know, making Ward an African-American. And then also, did you guys notice his shirt? Oh, yeah, Miskatonic University. Yep. As soon as I saw that, I was like, at first I was like, what does that say? Does that say Miskatonic? And I got all excited. And then I finally saw it and I was like, yes, nice. And they referred to Arkham as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that the, the town they're in is Arkham. Yeah. But I mean, like in the, in the, in Die Monster Die, it's explicitly, you know, like there's signs everywhere that says Arkham. Yeah. But here they mention it. I don't know that you ever actually see anything specifically stating that the thing that Nicolas Cage does with this is he plays crazy really well and he plays corny really well. Like, like Josh said, he's kind of like the dad joke dad in the beginning where the mom is after he cooks dinner and the mom's, uh, Teresa says, Oh, Hey, why don't you choose us a wine to go with dinner? And he's like, Oh, you know, he puts that whole corny, like, Oh, you're asking me to choose. He takes off to get the wine. And then she's like, I'll make dinner next time. You know, I know this is trash. Get through this. And you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And he knows it's happening. Cause you hear when he comes back up the stairs, he's like, Hey, you guys are plotting against me or whatever he says, but it's a nice corny kind of cheesy, relationship that all of them have going on and he's afraid of turning into his father and it was easy to miss that he talks about the specific voice his father did when he was browbeating him was there on the where they're on the patio in the beginning yeah and when he starts to go crazy he's using that voice for most of the movie Mm -hmm. i think my favorite nick i mean outside of the you know how crazy he does manage to get before the world, before everything goes tits up the scene where he's on TV and they're putting him as a bourbon expert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that was pretty funny. A bourbon enthusiast. UFO enthusiast. Thank you. No, I never said anything about UFOs. Do I didn't nobody give me a comb. That reminded me of parks and rec the way that yeah. local news would like just slant whatever they did to make it look as worse as possible. And it was a very, like you've seen that news report yep where they're like oh were you drinking at the time he's like well i i you know i I like the occasional bourbon and then he goes off on this tangent about bourbon and then he's like no i I was sober 
And it's just like, I felt bad for him. I love Nick Cage movies and he is, I would be happy to see him in more HP love stuff. Okay. Well, he does, I mean, yeah, not a lot of people do the, the slow burn into insanity or the fast burn into insanity either. I mean, he's good at both edges of it. Whereas most people like stick to one or the other, but he, he can take you from, from zero to a hundred immediately, or he can take you from zero to a hundred in half an hour. So well, I mean, Jeffrey Combs would be the only other one, which he's done a few adaptations for Charles Band. He's another one. I'm curious because three of us are practically gushing, and pattern recognition tells me this is the point at which Patrick shits all over the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you're gonna actually be uh, slightly disappointed. I didn't, I didn't hate this movie. I just, I don't love it as much as you guys did. Except that, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I. I enjoyed it. It was entertaining, but it was a little, eh, it was a, it was a little too much in a couple spots. As I don't even really know how to explain it. It just, I know, I know that there were a couple of moments where I was watching the clock and then there were, you know, there were a lot of moments where I was just really enthralled. So it was kind of a little bit disjointed in a, in a way, which is probably good for a Lovecraftian type show. So. And there is a pacing problem and at least one subplot, which while it was uh, reaching back to the ending of the original short story, it didn't add very much to the film. The subplot about Arkham's mayor wanting to buy the land and eventually creating the reservoir, which uh, theoretically the poisoned water makes its way into. Right. Like that doesn't actually add a whole lot to the story, but her coming all the way out and then going back to her on the news, like the movie did feel a little long and that probably could have been cut without losing anything out of the actual story. And you didn't need to like have interactions with the mayor herself coming down and checking everything out. Yeah. She could have just stayed on the news. There was, you know, it could have just been a news thing that was running in the background. It didn't need to be like an actual subplot. Yeah, and that, that's me picking nits, because I really did like this, especially, and part of it is because lots of people have tried to adapt Lovecraft, and usually it's shit. This was not shit. I, I definitely, I think he got the feel of it, and I agree with you about the, because when she came out there, I, I was like, okay, where's this going? And then it just never really was a thing again. I think it it kind of got shoehorned in there with the oh my God, the color is now running down the East Coast. You know, it's like to give you that feeling of nobody is safe because this got expanded, you know, because the entire East Coast is now getting its water from from this reservoir. I think they, I, I agree with you, Josh, they could have just done that in a news report. And if you paid attention, you would know that was happening. But I think they kind of had to, you know, put that flag up a little bit more. And I, I I think that the ending, because the very end, before we talk about the third act, where Ward Phillips is standing there kind of shattered by what he's seen, it's just as effective to show its personal effect on him and how he's forever changed without necessarily worrying about what happens from here for the East Coast with the water. And I think this was just kind of a, this is how the story ended, so we have to go here. And I'm not sure that it, actually added much to the ending. Like, I would have been happy with just seeing him three quarters broken, desperately smoking a cigarette, 
trying to cope with what he saw without even worrying about the water stuff. Mm -hmm. So we have all of the slow burn build as the meteor crashes, but the meteor itself isn't the focus the way it was in Die Monster Die. It's the color that is constantly making them lose time. It's warping their perceptions of everything. It's messing the kids up bad, and it's starting to create these beautiful mutated plants and animals, which is about the only thing that is similar between the two. Mm. But that it, part of it tastes like dirt. <laughs> right. That part is a slow build. You've got the individual super creepy moments with the mother cutting the tips of her fingers off. Yeah, the the time snaps and the the moments where they're losing where they kind of lose consciousness. I don't say consciousness, but where they kind of slip out of the whoever it is they are. Mm-hmm. Like her like her who is if you're upstairs and you're doing stock exchange and that sort of thing, you're super detail oriented. You're not the kind of person that's just going to randomly cut their fingertips off. You know, it pulls them out of who they are. And little by little, I believe it's absorbing all of them into a a central consciousness. Well, it doesn't know what they are. And it doesn't necessarily care, but it's here now. And it wants to make everything around it into something that it can understand. And Ezra gets that earlier than anybody else, because the electricity shit gets weird right off the bit. You see uh, his equipment starts going weird. Sammy's computer starts going weird. And everything that Ward brought to his little uh, research campsite, the star- a car starts on his own. His phone goes weird. His radio goes weird. And the time switch where... Um, where he shows up to talk to Ezra, and Ezra's like, oh, yeah, hey, you're the aquifer guy. Come on in. Oh, where you realize that there is now repetition of time, where time is snapping back and forth. Hey, I put just put the I just put the llamas away. Or I'm sorry, I just put the alpacas away. You know, now they're back out. Why are they out? Because now this color is messing with time in this time stream and you know, the screwing with your head. Right. But there's one of the, I think one of the reasons it's so unsettling is because usually if you see something like this, even if it's aliens, there's a sense of malice. This shit doesn't care. It's just fucking around with whatever's around it. Mm-hmm. Almost not even understanding that there are, or caring that there are people and animals living their lives. It's just remaking shit. Like the alpaca monster or the horrifying combination scene that just... Well, and that's where we go from unsettling to what I call the drop kick to hell. And that's pretty much kicked off by the bolt from uh, the color that fuses the mother and Jack together. That, I I agree with you, that was when it went to 11 for me. I didn't quite see the, the thing kind of outcome to it uh, what happened when she went back upstairs but it, it was definitely unsettling and it and it also was that much more jarring because up to that point every time you see what's going on with the meteorite it's very it's gorgeous like it's beautiful 
Oh, um, I I will a hundred percent say that this movie visually is amazing, and I think that's what helps to kind of make it that much more effective when the crazy shit and the the horrifying shit begins to happen, because you're like, oh wow, this is this is really pretty to look at, you know, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you're like, oh fuck, I don't want to look at that. It gets a little Cronenberg, but like not just gross for the sake of gross. There's almost a an alien internal logic to what it's doing. It's making itself comfortable. That's what it's doing. When the it lands, it doesn't know what's going on. It's making it 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 can adjust the world to match what it needs and to make itself comfortable, and that's what it does. Now I don't know if the did it land on you know accidentally did it land deliberately you know what was the reason for it to hit the earth did it come because she did that incantation at the very beginning i don't think so i don't think there's any sort of connection to human logic like it hit because it hit it hit and then once it's there it's like this virus that it just uses the machinery of whatever's around it to make more of things like it. The llama scene was kind of messed up. The alpaca? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm I apologize to alpacas everywhere for keeping to call them <laughs> llama. The giant alpaca candle. Yeah, the alpaca candle kind of reminiscent of like jo- like Joel just said of the thing. Like the dog scene in the thing. Yeah. Yep. That's what it reminded me of. So it's, I have to say that initially I was thinking, stepping into this, it was like, okay, this may not be great because history has said H.P. Lovecraft stories translated into movies don't turn out great. At the best part of that, uh, of the spectrum, I get to watch Nicolas Cage act wacky for an hour and a half. I was so surprised at the the care that was taken for the translation of this story. I did a little bit more looking into Richard Stanley. There's a short interview with him that's like 10 minutes long that's on YouTube. Apparently, Richard Stanley's mom was a huge H.P. Lovecraft fan and used to read him stories like we would read bedtime stories to our children. Oh boy. That makes sense because he gets it. Uh, one of the yeah. key cornerstones of cosmic horror is that what is unknown is what's most scary. And one of the reasons why the unknown is scary is because it is a mirror to show people how insignificant they are. The real truths are horrifying unknowable and the more you know about them the more you know how little you matter in the face mm-hmm. it's there it's beyond good and evil it's like this thing isn't going to kill you because it's evil it kills you because you're so beneath its notice that it just moves and you're dead do we notice when we step on an ant right that's how this comes out too and that is i think is the thing that really is terrifying to people when they read this sort of thing is that it's not a matter of you have a chance to defend yourself against this sort of thing. It's just the things are out there are so huge. You're not even, they don't even, what's what's that meme from Mad Men when they're in the elevator? 
I, I feel bad for you. I don't even think about you. Yeah. You know, that's, that's where that existential horror comes from. It's not that there's this thing that we have no chance of, of defending ourselves against. It's just, there's this thing that doesn't even acknowledge our existence because we are so beneath it. And it may be that the daughter briefly protected herself. Uh, Lavinia may have briefly protected herself with the runes carved into her own skin, but even that is just overwhelmed by the Mm -hmm. end. Uh, I loved from the moment he leaves her, she says, I live here, to the sheriff and ward going to see Ezra and what happened to him. Oh, yeah. And normally I'm uh, a little down on jump scares, but when the sheriff gets grabbed. Yeah, that was pretty good. That was pretty fucking good. And I got to say that the the tape playback of of Ezra's kind of breaking things down was really effective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really effective because that, that could go either way. And somebody took the time to make sure that that worked. The only thing that I I kind of felt. And I don't, I don't know the source material, so I can't speak to if it ha- happens in the book. But was at the end when Ward's trying to get to somewhere safe because he knows shit's going to hell, and he goes in the house, and the whole family's there. Which you know, again, maybe that warp perception. And then he has kind of that struggle with Nick Cage's character before he finally gets down into the the you know the cellar, the wine cellar. I felt like they could have left that part out and just had him struggling just to get to the cellar. And that would have been enough. It felt like just a, like a, like a little bit too far, but that's really the only complaint I have about it. I think as a whole, I think that scene where he goes in there and the whole family is sitting at, they're all sitting on the couch is kind of like that. The whole family has now been absorbed. They're all in one spot. Cause that's something that he keeps going on about in the, through the whole thing is though, oh man, we all stick together, you know, and they kind of come back to that. Like at the end of it, they've all been absorbed by the color. They've all been taken by the color and now they all stick together. And there's that little bit of a time snap where they're all together, but they're not. So it's kind of like they're existing as they should. They're a normal, happy family from that quick view. But at the same time, there's a, a big distortion on it. Yeah. And to address your question, Joel, the story is told after the events, the surveyor comes in and the area is all blasted and the gardeners are dead and he's piecing together what happened. Hmm. So aside from it being set in many decades earlier, uh, the, the characters are all the same aside from the gender swap for one of the children. And the story is told with the surveyor as investigator for what happened, as opposed to being an active participant in the horror that consumed the Gardner family. That's the big difference. But otherwise, like the events are pretty close. Hmm. And I think for a film, that's a stronger choice. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if we've milked this alpaca. (laughs) <laughs> you have to you have to stroke it just right that wasn't upsetting i don't want to say upsetting but that was kind of like all right nick <laughs> dude like to sell pack of milk hey 
He was all in on the alpacas. Yes, he was. So read up some. Yeah, I mean this 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 movie. You know, it looked good. The acting was good. It was written well. I mean, like I said, I didn't love it like you guys did, but I still thought it was good. And I'll see. Uh, I'm going to say this to Joel because I think Joel would Joel would get it. Um, you, Pat, I don't know how you would be on this one, but if you like this one, check out Mandy, which is kind of a re- revenge type movie. Is that the story about the the woman that that gave without taking, but they sent her away? Stop it. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say it's it's a revenge movie because. Nick Nick Cage's character is with Mandy and then she's taken from him and yeah, he exacts his revenge, which if you want a triple feature, throw mom and dad in there and you've got full on Nick Cage insanity. Yeah. Which mom and dad's about a virus that causes parents to kill their children. Yeah. It was one of the best trailers. It's pretty insane. So yeah, if you want full on Nick Cage night, there you go. Triple feature. You'll be insane by the end of it. Plus, you get a chainsaw fight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fucking that, epic ass chainsaw. That was that the uh, Mandy is one of those like I. After watching Suprizia from earlier in this week, <clears throat> earlier in this month. Suspiria. Like, Suspiria, whatever the hell it is. It's still <laughs> shit. Surprisia. Surprisia. I like my marinara. Pizza money. Whatever it is. All right, so are we to thumbs up, thumbs down? I yes, think sir. we are. Pat. Mike. Joel. John. Dr. Scott. <laughs> okay. Doctor. Doctor. And doctor. I think I would. Uh, I am an obvious thumbs down on the first movie, Die Monster Die. I think it should be called uh, Die Movie Die. I don't know. I, that's all I got. What's up with that title? That's, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's such a dumb title. It doesn't make any sense. And this one, um the the Colorado Space, I I have to I have to give it a thumbs up. It was it was creepy, it was it was pretty. The performances were good. I liked all the actors. Just in general, yeah, just a thumbs up. Yeah, I'm going to agree with Pat on this. It's a massive thumbs down for the original and a, a extremely enthusiastic thumbs up for uh, the uh, for the remake. The new, it's not really a remake. These have very little to do with one another. Yeah, it's these are all adaptations of the story, I guess. The Die Monster Die, I'm, I'm going to give it a, a tentative thumbs up only because I think I could go back and watch it again and have fun watching it and kind of lampooning it. Plus Boris Karloff and definitely a thumbs up for color out of space. I I heard a lot of good things and I was hoping that I wasn't going to be let down and I was certainly not. I, my expectations were exceeded. Yeah. I've got a thumbs up for the then because as cheesy and as awful as it was, I still have kind of like a soft spot in my heart for these 1960s, fifties type horror movies. For the now, big thumbs up because it's so good to see a H.P. Lovecraft story translated to film that is that gets it. You know, that really understands where where this type of thing is coming from. 
Excellent. So that's going to be Octobu for this year. Um, if you want to suggest something for next year, I know it's going to be a whole 12 months, which uh, Joel is going to be twitching. And if you're twitching along with him, uh, wanting to see more horror movies, and you have a suggestion for next year's Octobu, let us know. Give us a call at 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Yep. And again, if you're looking for more of this, uh, looking for our previous Octobu months and that sort of thing, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, NoonFM.com, Geek Life Radio on Wednesdays at 9.30, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, and Amazon Music. We are all over the freaking place. What's going on for next week, Joel? Next week, we're going to go shopping. All right. Yeah, I love shopping. Yeah, we had a lot of people talk about how they uh, like uh, it when we talk about uh, our memories and how things have changed. So we're going to talk about being dragged to the store by our parents and like how we do our shopping for our own homes today. So, uh, yeah, if you are a fan of those shows where you're like, how the hell are they going to talk for 90 minutes about this? Well, we're going to show you next week. Yeah. And the week after that, we're going to talk about yeast. Yeah. Who knows? The yeast show. We don't even know. Yeah. The ice show, all about yes, ice. Ice. Ice when I was a kid. It was seemed to be much colder then. I was an ice ice baby. <laughs> letter oh. R. The R show. We're gonna talk about all the things to have the letter R. Ice has gotten colder. Have you noticed? <laughs> it really hits my feelings bad. I don't I like the nuggets much better than the cubes. See? Right here, we we could. We, I'm not even joking at this point. We could probably do it. We could do the ice. And you know what? 45 minutes of that hour would be us arguing about what the best kind of ice is. Oh yep. That's why you got to call us. Give us a call and let us know, and we will fight about whatever it is you send us. This is actually going to be a show, isn't it? Screw it. Put ice. Put the ice show on the list. We'll do it April first. <laughs> Boo, 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 boo. <laughs> boo. Octoboo. It's not Octoboo. Said it eight times. It's a big, scary octopus. Boo. All right, I'm going to bed. Then we're done. Well, I was just thinking it'd be fun to talk about because, like, you know, when I was a kid, I there was a period where I wanted to be, I wanted to study astronomy, and I also was into paleontology, and then I wanted to be a writer, and then I wanted to be an artist, and then, you know, it's like all these things that I wanted to do, and I've ended up doing nothing or none of them. Yikes, so. dude! <laughs> that, that got dark. That got dark before Patrick chimed in. I was, I was going to be like, and which one of these did you wind up being? But then it's like, you know, well, what do we want to be? You think that's dark? Wait till I start talking about it. I was going to say, it's going to be the fear show all over again. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I can can start talking about how if 12 year old me could see me now, he'd probably just go ahead and shoot himself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then I was like, well, what do I want to be at this point? Do I have aspirations to do something more? Do I want to, you know, pursue some of the things I used to? 
want to be am i doing them in some regard you know but then i'm like and eh, it's nothing there I, I don't know there's nothing there like it could be an interesting show but it could get super depressing super fast yeah let's call it the life regrets show <laughs> <laughs> let's all talk about everything we've done in our life that we've regretted jesus that's gonna be a two-parter the regret show no <laughs> no 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 we're not going down that road patrick going to be like weird al at the end of the uh uh uhf <laughs> the more stupid life god it sucks 